0: That sound? Why, it's an engine purring. A pitchy temperamental beast of combustion, a 100% pure shot of shoot to thrill. What car did you picture as you heard this motor spin? Is it a Ferrari? Did you get that hint in the title of this episode? If not, do you know what a Ferrari is? Have you asked yourself why you know a car named after a man who wasn't a great car builder, race car driver, or even a halfway decent engineer? A man who did not push racing car technology forward at any point with any innovation, but was farcically late to implement technology that would have made his cars better and faster. A man who inspired the creation of Lamborghini because he insulted an Italian who bought one of his cars. All of these questions I've asked can easily fit under one two-part question. That question is... Who the hell is Enzo Ferrari, and why do we all know his name? Well, Enzo Ferrari wanted to race cars, or sing opera, or write sports, was too much of a coward to race on the limits, couldn't sing worth a damn and doesn't believe the truth is entirely necessary, which would make him an absolute shit journalist. You can find examples of all of this over motorsports history, but Brock Yates, who created, participated in and wrote about cannonball run wrote a spectacular biography of the man behind the scuderia in fact separating fact from fiction about ferrari and his eponymous cars has turned into a sport a game unto itself with that in mind i've adapted the child's game true or false into what i'm calling truth or ferrari using yates's book enzo ferrari the man and the machine i'm going to articulate a statement about ferrari you can participate by writing truth or Ferrari for false, shouting it at your car speaker, shouting it into the void, shouting it into a crowded train. If you answer more of these questions correctly than not, you win a prize. If you'd like to receive that prize, send me a tweet with your truth or Ferrari score at the Patreon linked below. Number one, Enzo Ferrari believed women to be a lesser form of human, truth, or Ferrari. It's true, Yates wrote, women, to men like Ferrari and his forebears, fell into two simplistic categories, the chaste females, who produced them and lustful, low-life harlots from whom they selected their mistresses and concubines. This idiotic double standard generated within men of Ferrari's generation and their sons, perhaps the greater fixation. With sex than any other civilized race. For example, adultery by a man in Italy is not punishable unless attended by scandalous behavior. However, if committed to. However, if committed by a woman, she could be sent to jail. But for a man having more than one woman is a measure of manliness, pure and simple. This, of course, presents contradictions, confusions, and ultimately massive insecurities. In his seminal work on his countrymen, the Italians, noted journalist and historian Luigi Barzini, put it this way. Most of them men harbor secret doubts and fears. A moment comes when every one of them is struck by the fact that most of the women he has had an affair with. Are somebody's wives. And that is not therefore materially possible. For all the husbands in Italy. To stray from marital fidelity. While none of the wives do so. There is no escape in the fact. That each day. A substantial number. Of proud Italian males. Jealous suspicious overbearing proud men. Are behind. Made. Corn nudie and become the object of scorn and ridicule, end quote. So, from that, you can already see Enzo Ferrari was a man of appetite, but also deep suspicions and hubris, which is the running theme throughout this entire show and his entire life. On to the next fact. Enzo Ferrari began Scuderia Ferrari to spite Fiat, Truth, or Ferrari. Well, it is also... True. In those wildly creative times when little was known of metallurgy, combustion chamber science, suspension geometry, aerodynamics, excuse me, etc., that would ultimately hold the keys to speed and durability in automobiles. Fiat was acknowledged as the leader in the new technology. This prompted an Italian authority on the subject to proudly reflect Fiat did not copy it taught after having created it was Into this exclusive milieu that the poorly educated, still unhealthy, totally unqualified, former army farrier poked his prominent nose on a winter day in 1918. He was bearing a letter of recommendation from the colonel of his regiment, the contents of which are unknown. Whether or not it was merely a form letter outlining Ferrari's vague skills, presumably revealing, you know, he could hammer some nails into mules' hooves. It's lost to history. Whatever the message, it was useless. The post-war job market was glutted with veterans, and Ferrari was doomed from the moment he entered the mahogany-paneled office of the engineer Diego Soria. Soria, whom Ferrari described as stalwart with closed-cropped reddish hair turning gray, politely but firmly described Fiat as too small a firm to absorb the services of the thousands of veterans who were seeking to work in Turin. Worse yet, for Ferrari residents of the city were getting the available billets. Ferrari wrote of his moment with poignancy, describing how he lurched into the wintry gloom outside the fiat offices and wandered through the busy streets to a bench in Valentino Park on the banks of the Po. There in the shadow of the immense Castello del Valentino, He said that he brushed away a layer of snow and sat down. Quote, I was alone. My father and brother were no more. Overcome by loneliness and despair, I wept. End quote. Fiat owed him a debt of honor that would have to be repaid. If, as Nietzsche wrote, a capacity for protracted revenge is the sign of a noble mind, Enzo Ferrari was an aristocrat of the highest order. The slight by fiat festered in his brain, creating an anger that blossomed with the passage of time. Revenge was a priority within him that would not be subdued, and repayment in kind to the Agnellis and their fiat minions was a debt he swore to fulfill no matter how many years it might take. This is Enzo Ferrari at his most John Wick. Next fact, ends the Ferrari stole the prancing horse from Porsche. This is true. It is an incident that has been recounted dozens of times, being warped and twisted a bit more with each telling, until the truth has been almost obscured. Let Ferrari tell it in his own words with some observations to follow. Quote, this is Ferrari. In 1923, when competing in the first Cirquito del Savio at Ravenna, I made the acquaintance of Count Enrico Baracca, the father of Italy's number one flying ace, Francesca Baracca, who had been shot down after recording 34 German kills. As a result of this meeting, I was subsequently introduced to the ace's mother, the Countess Paulina Baracca, who one day said to me, Ferrari, why don't you put my son's prancing horse on your car? It will bring you luck. I still have Baraka's photograph with his parents' dedication in which they entrusted the horse to me. The horse was and has remained black, but I myself added the gold leaf, this being the color of Modena. So goes the Ferrari version of the legend of Cavagnino, the prancing horse of Ferrari that has become one of the most famous logos of the 20th century. But his story is rife with altercations and omissions. To begin with, the emblem was not Baraka's personally, but that of his own Squadron 91. It was still employed even after World War II by the jet squadron for a Aero Brigada, and therefore was hardly his mother's to give away. As has been mentioned, Ferrari's brother Alfredo was apparently a member of the ground crew for the squadron, and it is possible that the countess suggested that the escutcheon be adopted in his memory. There is a reliable story that Baraka took the prancing horse after he shot down a German pilot over the Tolmezzo in November 1916. The German, who was flying an Albatross B2, was from Stuttgart and was carrying the emblem of his city, also a prancing horse on the side of his airplane. Therefore, it is logical to assume that the Cavallino Rapente so revered by Fer- uh, Ferrariistas, is actually of German origin and directly related thematically to that later carried by Ferrari's arch-rival arch from Stuttgart Porsche. Examination of the two logos reveals a startling similarity. As for the Countess giving Ferrari the emblem for luck, one must puzzle over what kind of good fortune it brought to her son. The final irony of the story is the prancing horse, While Ferrari sentimentalized the moment and significance of the gift, he put it in a drawer for nine years and did not appear on the hood of one of his racing cars until the 24-hour sports car race at Spa, Belgium on July July 9th through 10th, 1932. The Italian automotive historian, Luigi Orsini suggests in his excellent history of the Scuderia Ferrari that the prancing horse was actually presented to Ferrari in the 1930s just prior to his employment at Spa, but Ferrari himself repeatedly leaves the impression in his autobi- in his autobiographies that the gift was made shortly after his victory at Ravenna. Whether the Cavagnino Raponte was offered in 1923 and 1932 1923 and 1932, remains a mystery, as do the exact origins of the emblem. Although, it is known that in later years, Ferrari was unable to trademark the prancing horse due to complications arising from Stuttgart's proprietary claim on the animal. All right, so, pausing real quick to just, hey, Italian is not my first language. I struggle with pronunciation. I was hooked on phonics. I apologize. However, I am not going to apologize For not editing this podcast episode. I will fumble over words. It happens. But this podcast. You know is available to all the Patreon folks. Over on the Patreon. So. If you would like to kick in. I invite you to look at the Patreon link below. Okay. Let's move on to the next fact. Enzo Ferrari was an awful husband. Truth. If you've been paying attention at all. However, let me go about it this way. I addressed this earlier, but I think it bears repeating because of my opinion of people, especially those who are marked as outside for their influence, and Ferrari is part of that group of artists. While I generally understand the argument that the work people perform isn't indicative of the person they are and that neither of those things should be held into account, I don't think it holds water. When people are good and gracious and kind, we always remark on it, no matter how good or great or important their accomplishments in their professional fields might be. I also believe an indication of character is best seen in how they treat not the public, but the people closest to them in their private life. I fervently believe a person's work, especially an artist's work, cannot be separated from their personal life precisely because their work is influenced by their private life and vice versa. Finally, when we attempt to separate an artist from their work, we are in effect arguing to place them on a moral continuum that makes exceptions for objectionable and even criminal behavior so that we might continue to enjoy their work for free and free from guilt as we continue to enjoy their work. You're probably thinking of examples that fit into the morality exceptional clause or morality exception clause right now, but you know, I'll raise that man as Ferrari, again, whom, you know, maybe you don't put into that one. However, I closely read Yates' analysis of Ferrari's chauvinist behavior earlier, and here's an example of Ferrari writing about it himself. Quote, I married young somewhere around 1920. I cannot remember the exact year I, as I have mislaid the marriage certificate. He added in the third person, this young man declared that nothing else mattered where there was love. I later came to realize that The rest did not matter and did not matter a lot. Okay, back to Yates. That Ferrari's marriage was to descend quickly into a legal arrangement is an understatement. While numerous photographs exist of him and his new wife at various races in the early 1920s, he soon became the traditional Italian husband, seeking sexual conquest not so much for pleasure but for simple gratification of the ego. Gross. Enzo Ferrari was to remain obsessed with sex for most of his life, and it was probably within months that his marriage v- uh, vow, excuse me, to Laura Gorello, who he actually married on April 28th, 1923, after living with her for two friggin' years, were shattered. Years later, he was to remark to Romolo Tavoni, a veteran racing manager and close personal associate that, quote, a man should always have two wives, end quote. We will continue to revisit this as a topic throughout our conversation here. But again, this is where I stand. The next fact we have to say truth or Ferrari to is Enzo Ferrari lacked commitment, was a coward. To which I will summon my best Gucci Mane in the orange jumpsuit in front of the judge when she asked him, are you guilty, sir? To which he answered, bitch, I might be. Now, this might sound harsh. But we're also trying to separate the truth from Ferrari, a man who famously questioned Nikki Lauda's courage because he'd rather give up the fight for a world championship than drive an F1 car in dangerous conditions. Just weeks after Lauda was read his last rites at a hospital after a fiery crash at one of the most dangerous circuits in the world. Please do yourself a favor and go watch Rush. It's really great. And Chris Hemsworth takes his shirt off. So from Yates we learn... When Enzo was still a race car driver, he, quote, appeared at Lyon with Alfa Romeo's team and practiced briefly on the tricky open road 14 mile circuit, but without warning, boarded a train and returned to Italy. In his memoirs, he feebly explained, I was not well all that year, being seriously run down. My indisposition, in fact, was grave enough to compel me to cut down with my health that was to afflict me throughout the years to come. What was the nature of this serious ailment, you might ask? Some have suggested it was a nervous breakdown. Others feel it may have been heart trouble arising from his wartime illness. A few darkly implied that perhaps it was the beginnings of his connection with the dreaded ailment, the reality, or the rumors of the reality of which would dog him to his grave. Giovanni Castronini, the doyen of Italian motorsports journalists, during the 1920s-1930s, stated flatly that Ferrari was afraid. He believed the young driver from Modena, who was then by, what, 26 years old and had but 27 races under his belt, was simply daunted by the level of competition and nasty, blind hilled Lyon circuit and just went home. This remark from Castagnini was openly circulated and enraged Ferrari, who refused to forgive him until a truce was finally arranged 35 years later. Ferrari's longtime friend Gino Rancati made the following cryptic observation about Ferrari's racing abilities in his openly affectionate biography in 1977. He possessed a certain limitations as a racing driver, an excessive respect for the machines entrusted to him, and perhaps not the highest form of courage. <laughs> Next fact we got to take into account here. Enzo Ferrari was a fascist. To which, once again, I must summon Gucci Man in the orange jumpsuit. Asked, sir, are you guilty? To which he replied, bitch, I might be. Ferrari maintained that he was uninterested in politics and in view of his antipathy toward Rome and general disregard for the Catholic Church, which was deeply embroiled in the Italian political scene at the time, There is little reason to doubt him. He did, however, make friends with numerous fascist officials because most, well, those were the people in power and they had influence in the domestic automobile industry and maintained tight links with the party. Enzo Ferrari was learning to be supremely a political man, but not only in the sense that this would advance him, but advance his own fortunes, not those of any particular ideology. He met Benito Mussolini only once in early 1924. Il Duce was at the height of his popularity at the time and stopped in Modena during a circuitous, circuitous motor trip from Rome to Milan, Yates wrote. He made stops along the way to meet with a prominent fascist senator, for a long, typical Italian meal and talk fest. But Mussolini remained loyal to Alfa Romeo during his entire reign, perhaps because the mark was manufactured in the city where he rose to power. He was driving a three-seat Sportster when he arrived in Modena. Being the local Alfa conchonere and city's most prominent motorsports personality, Ferrari was selected to escort Il out of town. He tried to drive carefully. On the rain-slicked cobbles, but still ran a higher velocity than the less skilled Mussolini, and was capable of maintaining after several wild skis by the proud but inept leader. Ferrari slackened his pace until the journey ended a few kilometers later. Enzo Ferrari was, excuse me, Enzo Ferrari knew enormous change and uncertainty lay ahead for the Scuderia in 1934. Alfa Romeo's sagging econ- economic fortunes. Had in early 1933 caused the Italian government to completely absorb the company into the IRI, which is, you know, Instituto Reconstruzioni Industries, where it remains to this day, and placed strong willed Ugo Gubato at the helm. It seemed that the new chairman's policies dovetailed with Ferrari's desire to come commit. My goodness, thank you for listening to me this far. Ferrari's desire to commandeer the entire factory racing program. Gabato was young, an intense engineer who had risen to the top of the basis, excuse me, risen to the top on the basis of his extraordinary administrative skills. OK, he was in many ways the antithesis of Ferrari, one being thorough and methodical, the other inclining toward constant improvisation. Gabato was a classic organization man, which included his enthusiastic involvement with the fascist party. Ferrari tended to be the lone wolf, relying on his own wits rather than the collective wisdoms of committees. Gabato had spent 1931 in Russia aiding the communists and setting up the world's largest ball bearing factory. At the time, the Stalin regime had actively solicited the help of numerous Western engineers to aid in the industrialization of the state. Some, like Gabato, accepted their lavish enticements. Others, like Ferdinand Porsche, did not. Now, back in Italy and heading a fully nationalized factory, that was almost totally devoted to the military armaments business. Gabato made the decision in November 1933 that Alfa Romeo would cease competition on its own part and Turn the racing department over to the Scuderia Ferrari. Gabato, no doubt, made it clear that the fealty to the fascist party was critical if one had hopes of doing business with Alfa Romeo. While Enzo Ferrari never revealed any strong political orientation, he was pragmatic and a pragmatist of the First Order and realized that Gabato's sentiments would have to be acknowledged, if not openly supported. Like so many Italians, Ferrari's diet of fascism was based on a thin broth, not the thick, steamy soup of Hitler's national socialist or Lenin's chilly Marxism. Mussolini seemed to be a powerful, resourceful leader, and the masses adored him, at least from a distance, where his bombastic exhibitions could be enjoyed as pure djangoistic theater. Despite the gripping poverty in the south and the grumblings of the communists in the north, the nation was sailing along on his coattails, unconcerned about where the trip might take them. Much of the fascist apparent success, the public works projects, the heavy handed social engineering and the military buildup appeared to evidence the reemergence of a strong, united Italy, reminiscent of the Roman Empire. But it was a self delusionary charade beneath the the parades, the oratory, the strutting about in flashy new uniforms, the same old regionally fragmented, cynical, isolated, opportunistic, faintly bemused Italy chugged onward, unchanged and unaffected. Okay, Yates, you were in your bag on that one. Yes, the people cheered Il Ducci. They poked the skies with the fascist salute. They dared to dream of power and glory, but in the end, As the night settled around them, outside their shuttered windows, the people understood that it was yet another game and that if they were to survive, it would be thanks to their wits and their ability to play the ancient game of life, Italian style. Few men understood this game better than Ferrari and thrust forward by his realism, he joined the fascist party in 1934. His business relationship with Gabato and with Alfa Romeo, demanded it. There is no evidence that he was particularly devoted as a party member, although the Scuderia's newsletter did assume for the next four years a bellicose tone attuned by party doctrine. Fascist slogans were laced through the text, and Ferrari's traditional sniping at his rivals, the Maserati brothers, the German teams, certain drivers and sponsors who had fallen from favor, became more poignant and strident. Ferrari, always the cold-eyed businessman man, was not about to disturb a cozy arrangement with Alfa Romeo because of some silly, essentially irrelevant political doctrine. If fascism was in fashion and it meant extra racing success for the Scuderia, so be it, Enzo Ferrari would be a fascist. Woof. Next fact we got to explore. Mussolini put down the first super speedway. This is also true. It has become legend that Il Duce's achievements were limited to draining the Pontine and Camponaga marshes and relegating railroad schedules, or excuse me, regulating railroad schedules. But this is hardly fair. Between 1922 and 1930, over 5,000 major public work projects were undertaken, including the construction of the first four-lane motorways in the world. In fact, by the end of the decade, Italy had 320 of such superhighways and led the way in advanced road and tunnel building techniques. For perspective there, we didn't actually start doing the interstate thing in the United States until the 1950s with Dwight Eisenhower and FDR had the New Deal after Ilducci had done his version of the New Deal in Italy. The difference, though, is, you know, democracy, you know, rule of law, presidents, also checked by Supreme Court. Also checked by legislators. Whereas in Italy, is one dude making decisions and that usually ends bad for all of us. Okay, next fact we have to consider. Enzo Ferrari was once showed his, or excuse me, Enzo Ferrari once showed his cars in a barn next to horses looking to make a sale. Also true. Italian law forced Ferrari to have his only child in Uh, excuse me, his only child ever and we'll get to that a little bit later on but that's Dino, also true the Ford Motor Company was was the only foreign dealer allowed to operate in Italy in 1930 also true, in 1930 Mussolini doubled tariffs on automobiles from France and Germany to promote fiat purchases in Italy M-DASH, all caps however, M-DASH Henry Ford was allowed to open a Ford subsidiary in Milan, because he was friends with, wait for it, Mussolini, and, wait for it, Hitler. Holy smokes. All right, next truth that we gotta take into account. Motor racing is as popular in Italy as soccer, or for my American audience, you know, American football. This is also true. In 1930, the import duties on mobile automobiles was doubled, which essentially closed out the French, German, American manufacturers, although Henry Ford, whose sympathies with Mussolini and later with Adolf Hitler are well documented, quickly established an Italian subsidiary in Milan. But the overall effect of the tariff was to give Fiat a monopoly on the mass-produced passenger cars marketed in Italy, which it essentially enjoys to this day. Alfa Romeo, suppliers of sporting and luxury machines for upper classes, also benefited from this. As Italy steadily increased its military hardware, however, Alfa's efforts slowly shifted toward the manufacture of trucks, reconnaissance vehicles, and aircraft engines. Enzo Ferrari cruised through this national turmoil with his vision riveted on the tight little world of automobiles and the national craze of motor racing. No nation in the world embraced the sport more passionately and even the smallest cities had booming automobile clubs and, you know, which organized all manner of races, hill climbs and road rallies to bring honor and prestige to their regions. By contrast, the American entrepreneurial spirit had transferred auto racing half mile and one mile fairground dirt horse tracks where admission could be more efficiently charged. There, the participants were for the most part, working-class mechanics and tinkers. In England, the stuffy Edwardians had banned racing on public roads and competition was restricted to a few special tracks where only the very wealthy gathered, the right crowd with no crowding. But in Italy, motorsport crossed all social boundaries, rivaling football and cycling in popularity, while its center was in the industrial north races like Targa Florio or Florio in the dirt-poor Sicily or the Coppa, a race run deep in the agrarian toe of Italy, were subject of real national attention. The great and near-great stayed close to the sport, with Il Ducci himself offering a financial inducement to keep Alfa Romeo powerful in international Grand Prix competition in the name of Italian prestige. His dashing son-in-law, Count Galizzo Siano, Italian foreign minister and former lover of the Duchess of Windsor, donated a cup in his own name for a race in Laverno. While it was a badge of honor for noblemen to race cars, many commoners sat on the starting grids beside them, Ferrari being one. And the immense, all-encompassing love of fast automobiles injected a spirit of egalitarianism into motorsport that was known in other aspects of Italian life. Number nine. Ettore Bugatti was the man Enzo Ferrari wanted to be. This is also true. Are you sensing a theme? You must be sensing a theme. According to Yates, beginning on page 58 of the paperback copy of The Man and the Machine, Ettore Bugatti was a Milanese from a family of artists. La Patronne as he was known, was generally to be found conducting business dressed in his riding breeches, boots, a red waistcoat, and a yellow coat. His automobiles were and remain a stunning combination of industrial aesthetics and a jeweler's art, as if Fabergé had somehow been able to motorize an egg. We call that a modoc, but you know, whatever. Love that description, love that for us car enthusiasts. The Type 35s and the 51s that Scuderia faced were hardly the most technically advanced, but were simple, flawlessly fabricated, and as reliable as eight-day clocks. Bugatti eschewed hydraulic brakes until very late in his career, preferring, instead, cable-operated mechanical brakes. I build my cars to go, not to stop, he once explained airily. Yeah, all right, uh, sounds like a, you know, Very fast way to die. But that's just me. Ettore Bugatti was just one of a bevy of colorful eccentrics, dissolute nobles, playboys, dreaming commoners, and hard-eyed egomaniacs who populated the world of European motorsport in the 1930s. He certainly stood above the rest in terms of lifestyle. A feudal barony had been created around the spidery machines he manufactured in limited quantities and sold only to those he personally deemed worthy. By contrast, Enzo Ferrari was then still a drab, simple journeyman, laboring in a small garage in a fetid Italian backwater. But the example Bugatti was setting surely did not escape him. The transplanted Italian living in that sliver of territory mired in endless disputes between France and Germany was a prototype for success, also Gunther Steiner. He was manufacturing cars for the very wealthy and fielding his own team of professionals and wealthy amateurs. Beyond that, mobs of pretenders, dreamers, part-timers, has-beens, and dilettantes were flocking to the Mosheim to have their Bugattis anointed by the master before competing with inevitably modest success in the myriad of minor races and rallies being staged everywhere in Europe. Surely, if Bugatti could succeed at this, A similar concept could be developed on a more modest basis for the Scuderia. Now we're on to the next fact. Enzo Ferrari's last race was an all-timer. Just not for him. You know, like that famous uh, meme, call the police, but not for me. Except we're absolutely calling the police for Ferrari on this one. This is great. Enzo Ferrari was to have one last try at race driving. And the outcome sent him an eloquent message as to why his future lay behind a desk and not a vibrating steering wheel. The race was the Circuito del Tre Provence, a regional event in which he had participated twice before without success. The course was a single 79-mile lap around the Apennines to the southwest of Bologna, crossing the 4,000-foot Abitone Pass and starting and finishing in the small city of Pareto. Excuse me, Peretta. The Scuderia had no serious opposition. Borzacchini joined Ferrari with his big 8C 2300 sports cars, while Tazio Nuvolari was given a small 1750. The race is a classic example of how difficult it was to beat Tazio Nuvoleri. no matter the odds stacked against him. This is also a man that used to look down upon people that gave him a return trip back uh, if they were going to send him abroad to race, because he's like, "How dare you!" You're saying that I would drive this car safe enough to come back in one piece. And I assure you, I am hell on wheels and I'm willing to die in this race car. That is who Ferrari was racing against. And that is the guy that you're hearing me talk about. Up until then, the event, as it was, telling his longtime mechanic and sometimes Sancho Panza, Decimo Cappagnoni, I'm, sh- I'm sorry, Decimo, I just butchered your last name. But, you know, I again, I apologize for like the 55,000th time. Yeah. Not the 55,000, maybe the 4th, 3rd, 4th. I'll probably apologize again at some point in this. Anyway, Decimo, the, he told Decimo he was totally ignorant of the course and therefore a substantial disadvantage to the boss, uh, who was Ferrari, who had raced there twice before. Still, he instructed Decimo to prepare his car for the start the following morning. So, Larry had never raced this, never practiced it, and had a worse car than Ferrari. Who had raced this twice and had a better car. By the time he and Decimo pushed the Alpha to the line, both Ferrari and Bortzikini had left. As in the Mille Miglia, which we'll talk about a little bit later on, the race would be decided on elapsed time. So like rivals, if you play a lot of fours in motorsport, or time attack by any other name. Urged on by the screaming crowds, Nuvaleri sped off in hot pursuit. The potholed road paralleled a railroad track for a short distance, then traversed it via a level crossing. The Alpha hit the lumpy tracks at an absurd velocity that sent it flying into low orbit. Decimal saw the crash coming and grabbed a pair of handles inside the cockpit for support. No one wore seatbelts in those days and no one wore crash helmets either. But the impact was too much. The handles gave way and the hapless mechanic was pitched onto the tail of the car. Barely avoiding being tossed into the wake of the berserk machine, New skidded to a stop to assess the damage. The crash had broken the throttle linkage and bent the suspension. Decimo quickly jury-rigged a throttle connection with his leather belt, and the two set out again, driving the Alpha in tandem. Nuvaleri working the brakes in the gearbox, while Decimo yanked on the improvised throttle cable with one hand and held on with the other. But the grab handles were gone, meaning that he had to reach outside of the car for a grip, which in turn flayed his hand with flying gravel and stones. In pain, he withdrew it long enough to wrap the bleeding flesh with his handkerchief. Three miles farther on, they saw Borzacchini's car parked at the side of the road. Now, only Ferrari remained. Decimo protested that it would be impossible to catch him, which only made Nuvolari drive faster. They snaked down the Abitone Pass, barely on the edge of control as the Alpha slewed near the fenceless drop-offs at the Sestalola checkpoint they were informed that Ferrari had a 42nd advantage it was a mere 22 miles to the finish in Peretta, and to make up such a differential against a larger car over a such a short distance bordered on the impossible but with Decimo stretching his belt to the limit and new Valeri flinging the Alpha uh, through the bends wide open they gobbled up the distance. They shot across the finish line as the stunned and no doubt chagrined Ferrari saw his victory slip away by the margin of a few seconds. This would be the final race of Ferrari's career, although he did keep his Automobile Club of Italy racing license, number 16, active for several more years. He explained that the birth of his son was the reason for his retirement, but that must be viewed with some skepticism. Years later, he wrote in his memoirs, I made the decision not to compete anymore in January 1932 when my son Dino was born. My last race of the preceding season had been the Babio Monte Penis Hill Climb on July 14th on the hills above the Piacenza. I'm sorry. I debuted a new Alfa Romeo 2300 designed by Giano and brought it to a victory. But the day I promised myself that if I had a son born to me, I would stop driving car, race cars and would devote myself to organizing and competing with automobiles. I kept my word. I cannot claim furthermore that I would have been a great racer. Already at that time, I was driving no doubt away because I knew that I was carrying within me a great obstacle. I was driving the car and respecting it. When one wants to get spectacular results, it is necessary To know how to maltreat the car. Summing it up, I wasn't capable of making a car suffer. And this kind of love, which I can describe in an almost sensual and sexual way within my subconscious, is probably the main reason why, for so many years, I no longer went to see my cars race. To think about them, to see them born, and to see them die, because in the race, they are always dying, even if they win. It is unbearable. This is typically florid Ferrari prose without much relation to the truth, Yates wrote. There is little evidence that he cared about, and these are his italics, any automobiles, much less his own. From the beginning, they were implemented by which to gain, or excuse me, they were implements by which to gain gratification of his own ego. In contrast to Ettore Bugatti, who was gripped by the Bajas aesthetics of the machine Ferrari, never expressed any such sensitivity other than the foregoing, which was more than likely intended to excuse his humiliation at the hands of the faster drivers like Nuvaleri. Automobiles were tools, nothing more, nothing less, by which to glorify the Ferrari name on the racetracks of Europe. He kept no cars of his own other than the mundane passenger sedans, nor did he hesitate to send his most successful racing machines off to the scrap heap once they had become obsolete. Ferrari's decision to retire was probably more related to changing the changing demands of his career and his realization of his limited talents as a driver than with an abiding devotion to his young son. Surely, being run down by New Valeri with a battered, lower-powered automobile had to have set The message that his time and energies would be better served by running the Scuderia than actually driving. So what, pray tell, was it like to be with Ferrari at his office? Well, Yates gives us some insight. Ferrari's small office was generally filled with visitors or Alfa Romeo representatives, leaving him little time to compose letters on his typewriter, which were always signed in purple ink. He used that particular hue, he explained, in memory of his father, who always signed his name on legal documents with an indelible pencil, which left an impression of violent on the carbon copy. He was to use that color until the end of his life. Use purple, but everything else, Ferrari's red, whatever. Upstairs was the other component of his life, Laura and the baby Dino, both of whom were never to stray far from the maelstrom of noise and confusion that swirled. Below them. This is the part where I also say another fact. Enzo Ferrari would have fit right in to Netflix's drive to survive. This is true. This man's ego, as you no doubt have already just come to grips with, or still coming to grips with maybe, is gigantic. Back to Yates. The persona of the man who was running the operation was beginning to take shape, and that would remain consistent throughout his life. While only in his mid-thirties, Ferrari was firmly in control of the operation and given to fits of temper that would descend on the place like summer thunderstorms. A misplaced cigarette, a badly fabricated part, or late arrival of a worker would send his temper soaring and strong men scurrying for cover. At the same time, he could be a model of decorum, transforming himself into a charming maitre d' when the moment demanded it as when a highborn noble or fascist official arrived at the scuderia or a wealthy customer expressed interest in spending extra for a special bodied alpha. Ferrari was learning the art of manipulation with his drivers as well. How the subtle suggestion, the offhand remark, the critically timed slight might make a man drive all the harder. Enzo Ferrari was on his way to becoming the consummate manager of men. Not docile, soft-willed men, but proud, fiercely competitive, egocentric men whose livelihood, if not their very reason for living, depended on this most demanding and unforgiving of sports. If any man understood the dimensions of that unique human weakness the Greeks called hubris, it was Ferrari. Alright, and this is me. And in this, Ferrari was the forerunner, progenitor, and patriarch to what we now call the modern Formula One team principal and race team owner. They will use the media, as well as a stopwatch, to finagle, shape, and outright cheat their peers if it means they will win. Indeed, car racing is the only sport I've encountered where one might celebrate a victory in spite of a faster competitor or a car simply failing to finish the race due to reliability issues, or an unfortunate accident. Finishing first because the rest of your competition failed to finish is treated and celebrated just the same as setting lap records against a perfectly healthy field. To my American sensibilities, this feels wrong. But in racing, especially in Europe, it's simply called sport. And whatever means necessary... To have the best machinery possible is also considered sport, even if that meant Nazis and fascists needed to be fed it for funding. I mean, taking a step for, uh, farther, former FIA president, that is the president of the governing body of motorsport across the globe, Jean Marie Balestre, was allegedly an officer in the SS division of Nazi Germany and again I need to tell you I say again probably mentioned for the first time but I'm going to say it as if I said it again Balestre was FI president in the 80s not immediately following World War II some 45 years afterward an Italian magazine published photos of him in what appeared to be a German magazine uniform The story accused him of collaboration with the Germans in World War II and as an official of the Vichy government. It was then revealed that Belestre had served time in prison, which he claimed was attributable to his being fingered by Nazis as a resistance spy. His critics countered that he had been jailed by Germans after he had been found stealing from them. The argument boiled on for years with no conclusive evidence ever produced to dislodge Belestre from his August position, to which we must once again ask, Sir, Jean-Marie Balestre, are you or have you ever been a member of the German SS division to which he probably would say, Bitch, I might be. Okay, the next fact we have to talk about. Enzo Ferrari refused to fly, was suspicious about trains, and refused to use elevators. (laughs) This is also true. Indeed, Ferrari stopped attending races outside of Italy altogether following 1934. This is Brock Yates' uh, writing. Not even Monaco, the most prestigious Grand Prix in the world. Yates wrote, part of this bondage to Modena surely involved logistics. Ferrari refused to fly, was suspicious of trains, and presumably employed only automobiles for travel, which on European roads of the 1930s meant endless hours behind the wheel. He would also not use elevators. Overall, this man would call himself engineer, maintain a less wholly analytical view of his life's technical complexities. Okay, and let me be clear where Yates isn't. Enzo Ferrari was not, I repeat, was not, an engineer but a marketer a hype man a loud egotistical character who simply never stopped being such one of the rules for life that I have learned is it doesn't matter if you're any good at your job if you've been doing it forever if you've been doing it forever people just assume you're good at it even if you suck at it even if you were never good at it you got to keep the job you stay in the job People assign to you what they assign to Enzo Ferrari, which is whatever narrative that fills in that gap that says, oh, yeah, that dude's supposed to be there. When really, nothing about life is fair. None of this is a meritocracy. And uh, it's all not even up to you. Okay. Now that I've got to say that, Enzo Ferrari initially rejected the mid-engine concept out of hand, a caustic caveman to advanced car technology. Not only was he never at the forefront of automotive innovation, but he was also downright obstinate to it. Again, this is a fact and it is true. The idea here being that simply putting the engine in the middle of the car, mid-engine, allows for more even weight distribution, a better balance with clear corner exit speeds that make opponents feel as if they're stuck in mud. I say this as the proud owner of a Toyota MR2, the third generation midship roundabout two-seater, a lightweight, hill-climbing, two-gay timing, cutthroat cornering kaiju. Yet when one of Ferrari's designers brought him plans for a mid-engine single-seater, based roughly on the concept of the Audi Union's car which had dominated Grand Prix competition the season earlier, Ferrari rejected this layout out of hand, remarking, it has always been the ox that pulls the cart. Therefore, the new machine, codenamed Tipo 158, would be a conventional front-engine automobile based purely on the wishes of the commentatore, as Ferrari was called, a quasi-honorific bestowed upon him by a wanton dictator Mussolini and one he kept until his death. He would gain use, he would again use the same argument in the late 1950s, thereby anchoring his team at least two years behind his new British rivals. Also, to his credit and detriment of his team, Ferrari later walked back that he's, you know, not an engineer, writing his memoirs. I have never considered myself a designer or an, invent or an inventor, but one who gets things moving and keeps them running. My innate talent for stirring up men as he described it. I mean, sports talk radio host does the same. Just saying, like, it's kind of kind of in the job description there if you've been paying attention to any sports talk radio host or you know any and what makes them good at their jobs. I don't know. You might ask them. But the penchant to remain, if I'm being kind, traditional in his views of what a race car would be, continued to plague his teams well into his elderly age. Yates wrote, In fact, no Ferrari ever built was a glittering example of daring technology. The 125, with its short-stroke, small-displacement V12s, was one of very few examples in the history of the company that could be described as remotely revolutionary. A myth has grown up around the cars relating to their advanced designs, but actually Enzo Ferrari was extremely conservative and was often left at the starting gate by more creative builders, his reluctance in the future to adopt such obviously superior components as mid-engine layouts, coil spring suspensions, Disc brakes, Monarch chassis, magnesium wheels, and fuel injection exemplifies his crude approach to design. Mike Lawrence, the British racing historian, put it this way. Apologists have suggested that Ferrari was resistant to the idea, or any idea, which in his firm did not originate, and the late use of his original ideas, or of these, of other people's original ideas, I should say, The mark would not have gotten off the ground, for it has, and Lawrence used italics for emphasis here, never, ever introduced a new idea to motor racing. Although the Gamentatore would surely have been infuriated by such an accusation, regardless of its obvious truth, he admitted that the 125 was purely derivative. The first Ferrari came into being as an orthodox car. It was not the result of any experimentation. All we wanted was to build a conventional engine, but one that was outstanding. The reason that he needed to build his own car is because he got fired from Alfa Romeo just as the World War ended. And he was forced in the buyout to take four years off from racing. And that is why he had like four years of trying to turn Ferrari into making machine parts for other people and slowly trying to get himself back into racing when the contract would be up. It's kind of like Mike McCarthy who sat out for those years after he got fired being Green Bay Packers, but wake up at 6 a.m. to watch film with other people so that he could get a job. When he got a job, he got a job with the Dallas Cowboys and seemed to be going fine with the Dallas Cowboys, but Dallas Cowboys ain't won nothing since I was a child. That's about where Enzo Ferrari was when Luigi Chinetti convinced Enzo Ferrari to sell to Americans, and those cars that they did sell were trash. This is also true. A former race car driver and a man who saw the trophies Ferrari had won as the best advertising and marketing possible in the newly rich and unsaturated market of the United States, Luigi Chinetti was the man who convinced Ferrari to stop selling machine parts and start selling road versions of his racing machines on Christmas Eve in 1946. America, the man-child of a nation, could be either a blessing or a curse, Chinetti said. If Ferrari chose to remain... In the machine tool business, he would be crushed by the tidal wave of industrial power from the West. But by exploiting the new wealth that the same industry was bound to produce, both could prosper. Chinetti was firm, built five cars a year for America, and he would sell them for unseemly amounts of money. Give him the opportunity and he would sell 20 a year. A number on that dank day in Modena that sounded as Astronomical as if they had been discussing General Motors' annual output. Ferrari agreed, saying, yes, he might build a few cars for the provincials. Worse yet, the cars Ferrari initially produced in the 1950s were pissy, money, practically undrivable crap. Yates wrote, Ferrari's road cars were little more than detuned race machines, which sounds great, but check this, they were abominations to drive anywhere but on an open road at full throttle. They were noisy, they fouled spark plugs, they were impossible to start on cold mornings, and they had notoriously weak clutches. The bodies, while beautiful, tended to rust and leak. Worse yet, the cars boiled over in city driving. At one point, an American who was selling the cars in status-starved California went to Modena to complain to Ferrari that his Ferraris simply could not be operated in Los Angeles traffic, Without overheating. This is where Yates actually picks up the story. Ferrari reacted in mock amazement. And immediately summoned a new coupe. To demonstrate the contrary. That Ferraris could be puttered. Through the hottest, Excuse me. That Ferraris could be puttered. Through the hottest, narrowest, most stifling. Modenese. Modenese? Modenese. Alleys with ease. I did not mean to do that. That I just did. A trip was undertaken with Ferrari at the wheel. The Californian watched the temper gauge as they meandered through the city. So did Ferrari. Each time the needle began to edge toward the boiling point, Ferrari would glide to the curb and point out a famed local landmark, or get out and sip an aperitif. One day I'll look up what that is at a sidewalk cafe. He would tarry later. Oh, excuse me. He would tarry long enough for the engine to cool down and then proceed. When the temperature began to escalate again. The process would be repeated. While the Californian understood the charade, he returned home happy, content that he had been honored by the commentatore with his charming little ruse. To which I will add this small opinion: a chump. This Californian? He's a chump. He, 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 he's a chump. Move it on. Next fact we got to discuss: Enzo Ferrari laughed at a man who claimed to have slept with only. 3,000 women. By now, you know that this is true. This is a salacious way to get into Ferrari's home life. Yes, it's also true. Yates wrote this. At home, life was still dully routine. Lara was a distant, cynical woman who maintained a connection with daily operations through her financial interest in the company, although she came no nearer to the workshops than to putter in her garden behind the, uh, the dutiful schoolboy when his health permitted, Dino. Involvement with his father was inconsistent at best. Some associates call, recall that Dino appeared in the factory on a regular basis. Others remember him being alone for the most part on the sidelines of the operation. The truth probably lies in the middle ground, for I was hard on the boy, although he obviously took pride in him. One day, Dino drove a car from the Scuderia in Modena out of the marinello factory, Ferrari was fur- was furious. Dino wasn't healthy and the idea of the boy driving a car without his permission gave him fits. Despite his outburst of temper, which were daily occurrences, Ferrari intended for his legitimate heir to take over the business and there's reason to believe Dino cared deeply about automobiles. But Enzo Ferrari was driven by ambition, not by family obligation. And it is logical to assume that the child entered his life only when it was convenient. Moreover, Lena Lardi and little Piero, his other son with his girlfriend, were constant distractions in nearby Uh, Castelvetro. Lena Ferrari to remark to Tavoni, one of his friends, shortly after his arrival that a man should always have two wives. Gross. Ferrari was obsessed with sex, long conversations at dinner with close associates centered on women. Ferrari prided himself on his conquest. Women were simply objects, recalls one who worked closely with him for years. He didn't really care for them. They were symbols to be carted off to bed, notches in his belt, that's all. Years later, when Ferrari was in his 80s, he hosted a small birthday party lunch at the Cavinio restaurant across from the factory. His guest of honor was an old colleague and former member of the Scuderia. The man fancied himself something of a Casanova, and during dessert, Ferrari asked him in his customary point-blank manner, How many women have you had in your lifetime? Be truthful. The guest thought for a moment, then answered proudly, At least 3,000! Ferrari pulled back in mock amazement. Only 3,000? He sneered. Clearly, Enzo Ferrari was never mistaken for a liberated male. Italy is hardly a hotbed of women's liberation movement, and Ferrari, a man of the early 20th century, carried a simplistic, hopelessly chauvinistic view of women to his grave. He wrote that feminine superiority is apparent above all in the matter of marriage. It is the woman who chooses her mate, not vice versa. In fact, Any woman who is passably good-looking can count on at least three potential suitors. We men, taken into consideration as potential husbands, observe carefully. Weighed up, and perhaps chosen, we think we have wooed and won, whereas in reality, we are merely slaves of our desire, on which the woman has played with consummate skill. Ferrari also noted that men are vulnerable to women because of elemental hormonal passions. Men are capable of anything under the urge of reasons that stem from desire, he observed. I am convinced, Ferrari wrote, that when a man tells a woman he loves her, he only means that he desires her that the only perfect love in this world is that of a father for his son. That was written in 1961, five years after the death of Dino, and while Ferrari was juggling three women in his life, even as he drifted into his 80s, he remained, quote, a slave to desire. Gross. I'm also going to add in here, man, there's men that believe this. There are also women that believe this. There are also women that might encourage this. are also men that might encourage this. I'm just going to go ahead and say, I hate this. This really sucks. I really wish this was not an attitude that he carried. I don't know that I'm a liberated man either. I just think I'm a decent human being. This is a spectacular description of Mille Miglia that I want to get into because the Mille Miglia is a big deal. And I think that's like the whole point of the Ferrari movie with Michael Mann, with Adam Driver playing Enzo Ferrari. Hopefully it takes advantage of this because the Mille Miglia, well, uh, let me just tell you about it. The Mille Miglia was one of the most spectacular open races, open road races in the world. And here's Yates. Open road races had long been considered too dangerous by most civilized nations and had long since been banned. Even Mexican government, the Mexican government, had canceled the notorious Carrera Panamericana de Mexico after eight people, four drivers, two mechanics, and a pair of spectators, died in the 1954 event. But the Milamiglia only gained in popularity among Italian people. Estimates of the crowd that turned out to the line... The route, excuse me, estimates of the crowd that turned out to line the route soared as high as 10 million. Thousands of police and army regulars labored in a futile attempt to keep the mobs off the course. But drivers still had to be steeled to drive flat out in packs of fans moving wobbly wall, moving wobbling walls of flesh that would part like the Red Sea as they sped through. Uh, Group B rally crowds of the 1980s come to mind. In the rural sections, children skittered across the highway and often rode their bicycles on the shoulder. Strutting young men tried to show their mettle by attempting to touch the fenders of the speeding cars. An Italian counterpart to the running of the bulls of Pamplona. Some farmers refused to adjust to the annual madness. This is the old international harvester with, you know, my man Craig Morgan talking about hey. Uh, just uh, just smile, smile and wave, right? Because I'm on my way to make this payload and I'm, I don't care that you got somewhere to be. I'm doing 30 miles an hour. Competitors would sometimes crest a hill to discover a tiny Fiat sedan, a tractor, or a farm wagon wobbling along in the opposite direction. Yet the notion of fast cars racing on real roads, around twisting mountain hairpins, and through narrow city streets was the embodiment of every man's fantasy to charge down an open road flat out unencumbered by laws or moral and social impediments of any kind. This certainly was Brock Yates' fantasy. After all, the author of our guidebook into Ferrari also created Cannonball Run. For all its insanity, the Miglia was the ultimate automobile race encompassing a Belgian journalist, as Belgian journalist Jacques Ix put it, an entire lifetime condensed into a few hours. Enzo Ferrari said of the epic no driver could ever say he achieved his victor's laurels if he had not won a Brescia to have done so meant that a man had faced down the specter of violent death for half a day over some of the most difficult and unforgiving roadways in the entire world Alfonso de Portago told American writer Ken Purdy I don't like the mealy miglia no matter how much you practice you can't possibly come to know the thousands of miles of roads as well as the Italians. And Fangio, that is Juan Manuel Fangio, that is one of the greatest race car drivers who have ever lived, said if you have a conscience, you can't really drive fast anyway. There are hundreds of corners in the Mille Miglia where one slip by a driver can kill 50 people. You can't keep the spectators from crowding into the road. You couldn't do it with an army. It's a race I hope I never run. Not only did Portago race it, run it, he died racing and running it, May 12, 1957. Not long after this, Ferrari began to win Le Mans. A lot. He won in 1960, 1961, 1962, 1963, 1964, and 1965. All 24-hour wins for Ferrari at Le Mans. As his star was rising not just in the endurance racing, but the most prestigious race league in the world, Formula One, winning F1 Constructors titles in 1961 and 1964. Even in the age of Red Bull and Mercedes dominance that I live in, that we live in, Ferrari still owns the most world championships among constructors with 16. Had Enzo Ferrari been allowed to continue to own and operate his race team, he would have sold the, car, uh, the road car business to Ford Motor Company, as you probably know, but Ford didn't just want the car business, it wanted the race team too. Ferrari told them to take a hike. And therein, a story fit for a movie featuring Matt Damon, Christian Bale, John Berthold, and Tracy Letts was born. But Ford wasn't the only manufacturer Ferrari pissed off. The list is long, but I must include Lamborghini in this discussion before because it's fun. It's fun as hell, mostly because Ferrucci Lamborghini showed up to Marinello because he wanted his Ferrari to work. He liked the car. He just wanted it to work. And he was willing to help Enzo Ferrari make a better car, to which Enzo Ferrari just told him, hey, tractor man, because Lamborghini made tractor clutches at the time, go make tractors. Leave the cars to me. And Lamborghini, who is as Italian as Enzo Ferrari is, did not choose to take that slight at all and decided, you know what? I'm going to make a car that is better and faster to kick his ass, which means that Ferrucci Lamborghini and Henry Ford II both decided to commit... Considerable resources, time, energy, manpower to trying to whoop Ferrari's ass, and I find that completely funny, because all Ferrari did was put his name on some cars, and be tyrannical about it. That is not a man that I would have chosen to respect in motorsport. But you know, you win that many Le Mans in a row, you win as many F1 constructor titles as they have. I, I get it. You kind of, you kind of, kind of start arguing not with him, but with his resume and that in and of itself can lead you down a very dark hole it that you know is just filled with lots and lots of money as a matter of fact how do you blow a fortune yes start a race team make a very big uh, pile of money a very small pile of money very quickly and you might not even have anything to show for it certainly ferrari had its ups and downs and i kind of want to get into that because there's this really great epilogue that's written in the paperback version of my book uh, that Brock Yates wrote, by St- and the epilogue by Stacey Bradley, dated 2019, really does a lot to help you understand the last basically 40 years of Ferrari and what it means or doesn't mean, so we're going to get into that. It's called A New Beginning. When Enzo Ferrari died on August 14th, 1988, the automotive world bowed its head and held its breath. What would become the comp- What would become of the company? Would there be growth or stagnation? Enzo's strength and his personality were legendary, and his loss created a vacuum. Who would take over and lead? At the time of his death, the passenger car division was on the cusp of bankruptcy, and the racing team hadn't won a Constructors' Championship in F1 since 1983. Immediately following Enzo's death, as the company faced hemorrhaging losses that threatened to cripple all aspects of Ferrari, Piero Ferrari, was installed as vice chairman, that is, Leonard Lardi's son and his illegitimate son, who was given his name. Initially, continuity was key as Piero, the heir apparent, stepped into the breach, bringing familiarity and skill to a position not many men could or would embrace. Fiat also stepped into the void using its optioning power to expand its control of the company, taking on 90% stake while leaving Piero the remaining 10% which effectively assuaged any fears by adding the financial backing Ferrari needed to move forward. While this collaboration between Piero and Fiat worked in the short term, the company was floundering, and unless major changes took place, the passenger car division would almost certainly, likely, fail, leading to the demise of the racing division as well. In 1991, Gianno Agnelli, realizing the future of Ferrari was at stake, brought back Luca Cordero di Montezamolo, who's, by the way, still with us and a charismatic figure himself, the protege of Enzo and Agnelli, to lead Ferrari. Montezamolo had begun his career as Enzo's assistant in 1973 and became the head of F1's division in 1974. His canny ability to spot talent and enact change within division created a renaissance period and breathed new life and excitement into a racing team that had been struggling under Enzo's strict authority and myopic unwillingness to innovate. Okay, so Montezemolo comes through. Montezamolo puts everything back in order, hires guys like Ross Braun. Ross Braun, uh, a little bit later on, goes, hey, this guy, Michael Schumacher, he might be absolutely up for it. So by the time you get to the early 90s, all you know is Ferrari's really great because, I mean, John Tote, Ross Braun, all those dudes come by to basically create the Ferrari That we know. But one of the things that was very smart that Montezamolo did. Was also extend the brand. He basically had two mandates. Expand production of the passenger cars. Thus ensuring profitability. And create a winning racing team. From manufacturing the paddock to the podium. In the grand scheme of things. The first mandate was relatively simple. Increase production and keep the exclusivity of the cars. Within the confines of economically elite. While growing the luxury brand of Ferrari. To a larger portion of the global market. Essentially if you could not afford the car. You could still afford to embrace the brand, immersing yourself in the ethos, luxury, and mystique of Ferrari. Consumers could purchase a Ferrari keychain, watch, or jacket. still can, ensuring that the prancing horse emblem became more recognizable and more coveted, thus guaranteeing a larger piece of the economic pie, especially in a growing global market. Profits soared while the first mandate was implemented and achieved the second mandate proved a little bit trickier a proposition. So I need to say the best way to extend your brand is to associate yourself with winning. And winning in car racing seems to mean a whole hell of a lot more than it might in almost other any other sport. I'll say this because Red Bull is a drink company. But find an F1 fan that doesn't know that Red Bull just enjoyed the most successful single season of any team ever. Max Verstappen was in a car, That quite literally might go down in history as the best goddamn racing car to ever race a car. Like, it's friggin' phenomenal. And I'm saying that as a diehard Lewis Hamilton fan. And the 2020 Mercedes was a monster. And yet the RB19 whoops his ass. Like, absolutely stumps a mud hole in it and walks you dry. That car is ridiculous. Aerodynamics, the ground effects, all of it. It's reliable. I mean... Max Verstappen would just clear the field by seconds, and that, oh my god, that car is ridiculous. So, the race teams at Ferrari, what the hell happened? Well, the race teams encompass a diverse mix of skill sets and personalities combined to achieve one goal. They gotta win. It is predominantly a male-dominated industry where testosterone, talent, genius, and ego merge in chemistry is key. I don't know that... I mean, I'll agree that it's a male-dominated industry. I don't think of the rest of that. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, it just depends on who you're talking to. Many enthusiasts either do not know or fail to remember that there is a reason for the use of the word formula in Formula One racing. Unlike NASCAR, when it's like run what you brung, the origins in bootlegging, yada, yada, yada. yada. It's kind of progressed since then. Formula One has always been about extreme engineering and open-wheel racing at its finest, based on strict parameters each team adheres to. This formula, to run Grand Prix races, is governed by the FIA and includes both sporting and technical regulations. The technical regulations deal with the car's engine, transmission, and suspension, outlining the rules for size, weight, cubic inches, horsepower, aerodynamics, ground effects, fuel mixture, and the multitude of other aspects pertaining to the form and function of each vehicle. Sporting regulations, on the other hand, which... Also include rules issued by the Concord Agreement, which is, I think, signed by the F1 teams because Formula One itself stands apart from the FIA, even as it's governed by the FIA. They come to an agreement to run races together. The d- They define how each race is run, though, from start to finish, the race itself, the media, and the money. Prize shares, right? This being the case, a team able to win consistently has essentially captured lightning in a bottle. They have checked every regulatory box and not only mastered and engineered the finest vehicle, but also had the best driver, crew management possible, creating a cohesive unit which dominates the podium. Up until recently, like three years ago, two years ago, there was no salary cap or cost cap as it is known in F1, meaning if you had a bunch of money, you could spend a bunch of money. So a few years ago, Mercedes whooping everybody's ass. They would spend close to half a billion dollars on developing a single car for racing. Okay. A team like Haas, right, might spend 130 million. And generally, if you can spend more money, you're going to win more races. If you got more money to spend, you're going to win more races, which is why you'll find that teams that are backed by automotive manufacturers generally do better. Okay. That's why uh, programs like Red Bull or Williams Racing or even McLaren. Uh, along with Haas, are a big deal, whereas Alpine, which was, you know, Renault, is a state-run company that makes cars. You know, Mercedes is Mercedes, right? Ferrari, only here of recent, has become a manufacturer, a works team, if you will. And that all matters, right? Because as you get into this stuff, you get to see just what that means and how that all came together for Ferrari in 1999, which is a watershed year for the team. Ferrari was in the black, which is huge because race teams are never profitable, and this one was, thanks to an increased automobile production. Again, if you got got automobile production behind you, you're probably going to have more money. And hefty fees it was earning from licensing Ferrari's brand to other manufacturers or of luxury goods, but the racing team was still failing on every level and was unable to reach the podium. Losses notwithstanding, Montezamolo institutionalized in, man- in managerial changes, excuse me, his institutionalized and managerial changes were beginning to bear fruit. When Gene Tote, who's married to Michelle Yao, wild, go go him. Gene Tote was hired as team director in 1993. It set the stage for the positive changes within the race team. The perseverance and astute ability to surround himself with extremely talented individuals Tote wound up assembling a dream team of engineers, including Ross Braun, and Ferrari was finally able to hire Michael Schumacher away from uh, Benetton. Under Montezamolo's leadership, Tote, Braun, and Schumacher convinced Roy Byrne to join their ranks as chief designer, filling the final position necessary to ensure victory. This diverse yet cohesive group of men had a win at all costs philosophy, controlling every aspect of Ferrari's race team which led to an unprecedented six consecutive Constructors' Championships and five Drivers' Championships. Ferrari was seemingly unbeatable 1999 to 2004. I also need to add in here, they also employed what are called team orders, which is when Michael Schumacher might have lost a race to one of his teammates, they would tell his teammate, hey, back off and let Michael win. Again, racing, wild. Any means necessary, It's all kosher. If it's, you know, not a rule, then it is not a rule. If it is a rule that you can circumvent, then you circumvent it. The team started to stagnate a little bit later on. A lot of that had to do with Ross Brown choosing to retire and then unretire. He came back to race with Honda. Honda could not afford to go through with his race program. They kind of bought it for like a dollar and then stumbled into the regulations to find that, oh, there was nothing that prevented them from running more than one diffuser on their car, and that made their car spectacular so Ross Braun Braun GP as it was known won the 2009 world championship that may never ever happen again but that kind of gets to the point of just how technically efficient you have to be at reading those rules and Ross Braun was really great at that but all of this comes around Ferrari as a matter of fact for a very long time there was a Ferrari benefit built into the Concord agreement where Ferrari would always get a little bit more money than the other teams because Ferrari was synonymous with Formula 1 They've since kind of let that go, but that's also because Ferrari ain't been nobody since 2005, 2012, right? I mean, we're talking about Kimi Raikkonen being the last Ferrari driver to win a world title. And they haven't looked like coming close here recently, even though they've had not just Raikkonen, right, but Fernando Alonso, who may be the most versatile driver ever and a two-time world champion. He's looking to get a third because that would equal Ayrton Senna. They got Charles Leclerc, who probably better in a one-lap race, like a qualifying race than anybody else on the grid. And I think Carlos Sainz Jr., uh, son of Carlos Sainz Sr., rally legend, is also really great. And, you know, everybody knows that they got the money to go do this. It's just, why haven't they? That said, I know way more Ferrari fans than I know race fans. You know what I'm saying? And that kind of gets under my skin. But that's because I know now what you know. Ferrari actually done anything for motorsport except put his name on some stuff yeah that is the great lie and truth of ferrari uh i apologize for the editing of this episode but you can always complain at the patreon all right bye